and talking about discipleship. And I want to stay on that avenue. I want to stay on that trail because I believe that's the heartbeat of Keystone is discipleship. Um, it's really what we were focusing on, you know, when we first had talks in Indiana about what does Keystone look like, what's it going to be. The conversation always revolved around discipleship. You know, what we wanted to build was uh, very similar to the small group that we had in Indiana because we had this something special that we were creating that was tight-knit. It was family. It was, it was ugly at times, but it was beautiful at the same time of the ugliness. Josh said, we would share in each other's struggles. You know, we'd come on a Monday night and we had no problem opening up in front of somebody and saying, hey, I'm having, you know, name the issue. I'm having sexual issues. I'm having financial issues. There was, there was never any type of anybody looking down on somebody because they had an issue. It was, okay, brother, how can we help you walk through it? How can we help you get to that next step? We can't get you out of the struggle, but we can certainly walk through with it or walk with you through it. You guys got what I mean? <laughs> I've been dyslexic all week. I've been mixing numbers up and stuff. It's been crazy. It's all of a sudden, Colin goes dyslexic. It's weird. So anyway, um, so that's kind of you know, the, the model that we wanted to bring here. And you know, we wanted to start off big. We wanted to have you know, big, huge services with the big production. And we heard God right literally the day that we were about to start getting financing and start going forward with this, uh, God told Pastor Lonnie, stop everything. Michael and I got very bitter. We got mad <laughs> because we wanted to be hired on the church and we're church full-time. Pastor said, no, we're not doing that. And we said, you stink. You're a liar. So <laughs> I pouted for about three months. Michael pouted for about a year. Um, <laughs> but it's okay. We're healed. God used that. Um, we walked through the struggle together, right, Michael? <laughs> so, no, it was good. And, and now we have a setting like you see, like Tuesday nights, like Thursday nights, this small, intimate, we never want it to get too big. You know, the, the model that we want to build is uh, growing inward where we have a bunch of people under one roof, but growing outward, where we have a bunch of people at a bunch of different campuses, so we have more of that family feel, that intimate feel. Family's ugly, you know? I mean, I don't know how many times you talk about people and, like, they think their family is the most dysfunctional family. You know, family can be ugly, but it's because you know everybody's mess. That's not a bad thing. It's just what it is. It's family. And you walk with each other through that. You help each other get through that mess. And you go through it. So, so anyway, I want to stay on that, that trail of discipleship. So quick review. Um, some of the things that we've been talking about. You know, Pastor Lonnie started off about the, the three levels of discipleship. What was the first one? What was the first one? The three, the three levels of discipleship. You had a student... Yes. <laughs> and then next, after you were, in a, as a student, you gained information. You guys are moving ahead of me. Let's go watch the Notre Dame game. You guys got this. <laughs> um, then we moved to apprentice, and then you'd actually be doing the stuff. And then after that, after your apprenticeship was over, you'd move to master. Well done. So, and then in discipling culture, you have a culture where there's high invitation, but there's also high challenge, and that creates empowered people. Good job. Um, 
<laughs> so, and then we moved on to you know, some of the differences between the Roman way of discipleship, which really infiltrated the Western church right away, and then some of the differences of the, the Celtic way of discipleship. The Romans believe that you, you have to believe before you can belong where the Celts kind of threw that and mixed it up and said, you know what, why don't you belong first and you'll believe along the way? Why don't you just come be a part of our community? And then as we walk life out, you'll see that living with Jesus, following Jesus, is the best life. We don't care if you believe or not. Just, just come with us. You belong here. We're friends. It's okay. So we see a similar transition when Jesus comes on the scene uh, in uh, Israel. Because it was a very, very, very similar type of discipleship model with the Hebrews and the way that they did their schooling and the way that they would, the rabbis would pick their disciple. So as we, we're going to kind of get into this, and what the, the Hebrews would do is they believed that you had to get the children into schooling, learning the Torah as fast as possible. They actually believed that if the children weren't, weren't having a solid foundation of how to live life through the Torah, the way the Torah taught you to live, that they were one generation away from extinction. Well, that's pretty serious, especially you know, at that time. You know, now we think of people group becoming extinct, and it's for that to happen. You know, it'd have to be you know, almost three generations long before that could happen. So no one really takes it very seriously. But at that time, it was very serious because you start infiltrating other cultures into yours and you start you know, um, having mixed children from different cultures and stuff. All of a sudden, you lose your culture and you become extinct. When we were pastoring the uh, church in, Indiana, or in Gary, um, we had that small plant. And uh, Pastor Lonnie was talking to another pastor and he said, you know, if we don't reach this next generation in Gary, I believe the city of Gary is going to be an unreached people group. The pastor looked at Pastor Lonnie in all seriousness, not cracking a smile, and said, they're already an unreached people group. They go to church, do church, but they don't know who Jesus is. It was, yeah, it was very powerful. It was one of those things that, you know, when Pastor said it, it, it kind of took us all aback. We're like, Wow. That, that might be true here. We've got an entire culture that doesn't know what it's like to live in the kingdom. They know what it's like to go to church. They know what it's like to church. They know what it's like to look clean so they can belong. But Monday through Saturday, they don't know what it's like to live the best life. They don't have a clue. And it was kind of scary. So the Hebrews actually had it right about getting this grounded in their children as soon as possible. And that's what's fun about teaching at Sunday school is you begin to disciple these young kids. You are given, as a Sunday school teacher, Saturday night teacher um, with children, you are given an authority to disciple children. It's absolutely amazing. It's fun. It's frustrating. But it's fun. I promise it's fun. <laughs> so, so the first school that they would go to was called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer they would go to from ages 6 till 10. And once they would enter into Bet Sefer, they would begin to learn the basic things. So they would learn writing, they would learn reading, um, they would learn, start to learn Torah. And by age 10, they would actually memorize Torah. So Torah was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. At 10 years old, every single child coming out of Bet Sefer would have the Torah memorized. That is absolutely insane to me. 
I was listening to a, a sermon this week where, you know, the, the preacher was talking about, oh, you can't, you know, he had heard parents telling him, you know, you can't an eight-year-old to learn the entire Torah. And he goes, how many eight-year-olds know every line of Dumb and Dumber? It's like, <laughs> guilty? So, you know, they would come out at 10 years old. Now, at 10 years old, they would come out of Bet Sefer and there would be a graduation process, basically. And in that process, the best of the best of Bet Sefer, they would come in, they would pass their tests, and they would move on to the next schooling. But the ones that failed, they would be told, you are not fit to move on, go do your father's trade. Be discipled by your father in your father's trade, whether it was a carpenter, whether it was a fisherman, you know, stone worker, whatever it was. So the next school that they would move on to at age 10 was Bet Talmud. From 10 to 14, you would go to Bet Talmud. And in Bet Talmud, you would memorize the rest of the Tanakh. So the rest of the books of the Bible from Deuteronomy to Malachi, you would memorize the rest of them. Again, this model of infiltrating the Torah, the Tanakh, the God's way of living deep into the bones of children so that they wouldn't stray from it. They knew that if they could get their children to memorize it, that then they may have a chance of walking it out and they may have a chance of continuing on. So there's some good things and some bad things. I think there's some good things here that we can take away and say, you know, we need to be teaching our children this way. You know, maybe not as strict as saying memorize the entire Bible by age 10, but, you know, getting it deep into their bones, the way of living, the way of Christ, the, the best life, as Pastor Lonnie would call it. So then at age 14, you would move out of Bet Talmud, and you would basically graduate from there, and then same process. Basically, some would be told, you have failed, go work in your father's trade, be discipled by your father. Others would pass, and they would move on. Now, we see Jesus is at this place. Where is he at age 12? Remember when it says that his parents couldn't find him. Where was he? He was at the temple. What does he tell his parents? Doing my father's work. Where do you think I would be? See, Jesus would have gone through the same process. But here's the thing. Jesus was God. He would have passed every single one of them with flying colors. So he would have kept moving on. He would have never been told, you failed, go do your father's trade. You know, we're always told Jesus was a carpenter. But he's called a rabbi throughout all of Scripture. They wouldn't take that lightly. You don't call somebody rabbi just because you have respect for them or because they have you know, good teaching. You would call them rabbi because they were a rabbi. That, that place was a very high place of honor, that, that occupation. I mean, that's like, you know, call me Peyton Manning. I mean, you just you don't do that because I'm not Peyton Manning. You know, I don't play football. I played football one time in my life in eighth grade. I got sitting on the bench on the seventh grade team. You don't call me any type of football player. So at age 14 then, they would move on. And what they would do is at that point, they would be at the temple and they would be kind of hanging around the temple. And they would be looking at other rabbis that they would want to follow, that they would want them, that rabbi to disciple them. And as they would go on, um, they would be looking for these rabbis and they would say, I want, to, I want you to be my disciple. Or I want you to disciple me. Excuse me, I want to be your disciple. And at that point, the rabbi 
would say, okay, I'll watch you. And he would watch that, that, uh, that child at age 14. He would watch how he interacted with people. He would watch how he recited the Torah. He would watch how he would answer questions and question each other. You know, what does Pastor Lani always say? A great rabbi was known by what? Questions. Not by his answers, but by his questions. So, for example, they would, rabbis would have conversations with, with each other, and one would say, what is 2 plus 2? And the other one would say, what is the square root of 16? Or what, what is 8 divided by 2? Because they, that's how they were able to display their knowledge of the Torah. Because they would ask a question, and then they would ask another question to display how well they knew it that they could ask another question but then keep the conversation going about God. And that was the point was, let's keep the conversation going about God and let's dig and let's dig and let's dig. So there's a lot of other things that they would do to test these kids to see how well they knew the Torah and if they were able to become a disciple. So then at that point, if that young child able to move on, rabbi would come to him and he would say, Lech Akhara. Say that with me. Lech Akhara. Lech Akara. At that point, Lech Akara meant come follow or follow me, as, we, as Jesus says on a regular basis at the beginning of the Gospels. So then they would enter into Bet Midrash. And at that point, they would become a Tamudin. And a Tamudin basically meant disciple in Hebrew. So from ages 14 to 30, they would follow their rabbi as closely as possible. Now this was one of the, the highest honors to, be, to have a rabbi come to you and say, follow me. It was the highest of highest of, of call. It's like Calipari coming into your living room, sitting down and saying, here's a full-ride scholarship to play at University of Kentucky. And by the way, I can guarantee after your first year playing here, like all my players, you will go to the NBA. <laughs> because that's what UK does, is one and done. But they win. So can you argue with it? No. Anyway, um, <laughs> so... That, that was the highest honor. I mean, you knew that you were set for life. And at that point, you would leave your home. You would leave your family. Your family would bless you and say, yes, go. They wouldn't want you to come home. They would say, go. Because they knew that that rabbi, and at that time, rabbis were the wealthiest people on earth. So they knew that they were taken care of. Because when a rabbi said, come follow me, everything was taken care of. Their food, their clothes, where they would stay, everything was taken care of. And through that time, they would study their rabbi, they would follow their rabbi, and they would want to be exactly like their rabbi. So they would do everything he did. I heard a story that a rabbi had his temudin with him, and this is modern day, and he walks into a bathroom. All of his temudin walked into the bathroom with him because they would want to know how he went to the bathroom because they would want to do it exactly like him. I can't imagine there's too many variations of it, but apparently they take this thing seriously. So that's how serious this was. That's how much they wanted to be like their rabbi. Now, one of the greatest Hebrew blessings, they, they talk about it in the Mishnah, was people would say to some of these Talmudim, they would say, be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Now what this meant, was the Talmudin would follow so closely to their rabbi as they were walking through the towns and walking from city to city to tell people about how 
they live out the Torah, their interpretation of the Torah, and preach their message. And when they were walking, they would, excuse me, you know, the, the roads were all dirt. There was no pavement, obviously. It was all dirt. So when they would walk, they would kick up the dirt. Whoever was closest to the rabbi, at the end of the day, you'd be covered in dust because you were so close to a rabbi and he just kept kicking dust on you. And that was the best blessing that anybody could have. You know, after, after walking for an entire day, the, the one who would be covered in the dust of the rabbi, he would brag about it. He'd walk around and be like, I got the most dust on me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that dust just fly. Yeah, that's the dust of my rabbi. And, I mean, that's what you wanted, was to be as close as you could to your rabbi so you could learn as much as possible. So <clears throat> we see a, a reference to dust in Acts. When Peter is addressing uh, the Jewish people, we're going to start in Acts 13.44, if, if you get your Bible with you and you want to follow along. But it says, the following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. But when some of the Jews saw the crowd, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message and all who were chosen for eternal life in believers. So the Lord's message spread throughout that region. Then the Jews stirred up the influential religious women and the leaders of the city, and they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town. Here's the important part. So they shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection and went to the town of Iconium. And the Greek believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So when, when they say that a Jewish person would shake the dust off of them as a, excuse me, as a sign of rejection, what that really meant was, we don't want what you're teaching. It was the biggest rejection that a rabbi could get. Because they would basically say, you're a false prophet. You're a false teacher. Get your dust off of me. I want nothing with you. All of your teaching is a mute point to me. Go away. It was the biggest rejection that you get. So we know the rest of the story. Then they go out and they teach the Gentiles and the Gentiles accept the Gospel and, and the world's changed. So all this was very similar to the Roman way of discipleship. You had to be versed in the ways of Torahs. You you, then you could become a disciple. Excuse me. You know, the Roman way was what? You had to believe before you could belong. A rabbi would only choose the best of the best. It was very similar to that Roman way of, eh, if you're not the best, go do your father's trade. I don't want you. Jesus comes on the scene and he flips all this on its head. He completely changes the model. He goes through and he calls a bunch of degenerates. He calls a bunch of rejects. calls a bunch of guys that failed. A bunch of guys that went through schooling and at some point during schooling were told, you're not good enough. Go do your father's trade. So now we go to Matthew 4. 
19 through 22. And Jesus called out to them, Come follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. See, now they would have known what it meant when he said fish for people. You know, we, we've Christianized this a lot as, you know, obviously the, the Western culture way of making disciples. But they would have instantly known when Jesus said that. One, come follow me. Lekakara would have meant you're taken care of. You are chosen as one of the best of the best. Come follow me. I'm going to take care of everything. And I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. He would have said, at some point, when I release you, you're going to do the same thing to somebody else. You're going to call them and you're going to say, follow me. And somebody's going to want to be in the dust of you. Somebody's going to want to be behind you saying, I'm covered in the dust of my rabbi. A little farther up the shore, he saw two brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets. He called them, he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. This part's important because it says they left their father behind. And most of us have been taught, you know, that it was just Jesus pressed the God button and made them come to him and their father couldn't do anything about it. But you never read anything about their father saying, hey, come back. You guys got a job to do. You know, I know how my dad raised me. And if I was, if he was a fisherman and I was mending his nets, you know, mostly we were in the garage changing oil. But, you know, if we were in the garage and I was changing the oil, and I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, under the car and I'm unscrewing the, the thing that holds the oil in. Michael, you know what it's called? <laughs> yeah, the screw that holds the oil in. And all of a sudden, somebody just walked down the street and said, Colin, come follow me. And I just dropped it and walked away. My dad's like, hey, you can go later. Get back here. You got work to do. You can go at the end of the night. You can go hang out with that guy. But come here. But his father doesn't say this. Why? Because his father knew to hear those words, Lekha would mean everything, not only to his kids, but to his father. Because his father, that was a great compliment to him because he would say, my boy's got what it takes. One of the greatest rabbis of our day called my boys. Guys, I got these nets. Go. You guys are taken care of for life. You're set. Please go. Get out of here. You know, Dave, if, if John Fox came, came down into any of your boys and said, Come on, guys, I got you. I'm going to train you up. You're going to be Broncos one day. Exactly. Get out of here. Go. <laughs> Don't come back. I'll see you later. Come take care of me when you're playing in the NFL. <laughs> so what does Jesus do? He calls all these failures. He calls the JV team and says, Come on, guys, let's go. Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. Zealots were political guys that they didn't know how to argue with people. So when they got in an argument, they'd just kill somebody if they disagreed with them. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> you know, like, you know, the Torah is the only way to live. If you don't live by the Torah, screw you. Well, we disagree with you. Fine, you're dead. That was zealots. And Jesus called zealots. And he said, come on, guys, let me teach you. Why don't you follow me? Why don't I take care of you? You guys are going to change the world. So based on what we see here too, if we look at ages that you would go through school, how old would all these disciples have been when Jesus called them? They would have been teenagers. It, it, Caleb. Jesus would have called Caleb his age. History says that Peter was probably the oldest. And they say this because Peter spoke up the most because Peter was closest to Jesus. 
a rabbi would always call one that was a little bit older than everybody else to kind of be the head of the disciples, per se. So they they kind of infer that because he talked so much, even though he probably shouldn't have as much, that he was probably the oldest of all of them. But most of them would have been 14, 15, 16, max. Talking about a bunch of teenagers changed the world. Completely flipped everything on its head. Had governments running scared, killing people because they had this teaching that was empowering people and changing people's lives. Absolutely incredible. How is that so much different to what we do today with discipleship? To what we do in churches today? Only calling the best of the best. You've got you, you to go to Bible school. You've got to get straight A's. Then you can, come, you can come to our church and you can preach. And we'll pay you too. <clears throat> so, now I'm lost in my notes. <laughs> so Jesus believed in these common men, these failures, to change the world when they had lost confidence in themselves. I mean, could you imagine going through high school, getting to maybe your freshman, sophomore year, and the head of the school, the dean, the principal, whatever, come to you and saying, you are not fit for school. Go do the trade of your father. How demoralizing would that be? I mean, some high schoolers now would be like, sweet, no school. <laughs> but to say, you, you can't go to college, you're unfit all by somebody's opinion. You're not fit to do anything except what your father does. So go learn his trade. You are a failure. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey guys, I believe in you. I um, heard a pastor or a preacher once say that when Peter got out of the boat, when Jesus called him to walk on water, and he began to sink, that when Jesus said, you of little faith, Jesus was still walking on the water, so it wasn't Peter's faith in Jesus. It was Peter's faith in himself that failed him. See, Peter would have wanted to walk on water because he would have saw his rabbi do it. And a disciple did everything the rabbi did. Everything. They wanted to do anything, everything that he did, the way that he taught, the way that he ate. If he ate with his left hand, they would want to eat with their left hand. If he kicked a soccer ball with his right foot, they would want to kick with their right foot. If he threw with his right, they would want to throw with their right. Everything. So when Peter saw him, it wasn't out of the ordinary for him to say, call me out to walk on the water. That was actually perfectly normal in those times because his rabbi was doing it. And what does Jesus tell him? You have little faith. Why didn't you believe in yourself? I believed in you. I believed in you. I called you out. Why didn't you come out? Why didn't you come out? Why didn't you keep walking? Why did you stop believing in yourself? This will absolutely change your life if you can get this in your heart of hearts. That Jesus believes in you more than you believe in yourself. Absolutely incredible. I started, because I didn't really believe that for a long time, but I started practicing it this week. I had a really roller coaster week. Biggest deal that I've had since I took this job. Basically had it closed. Walked into to the closing meeting on Tuesday. And the guy says, sorry, we can't do it. Now this was the deal that was putting me over the top to hit my bonus to start moving on to the next level. If I didn't, everything, my month, my career, 
where I was going financially for the next six months, everything wrote on this deal because everything else that I had that could get me to that point is about a month or two out. So everything was right on this deal. And from the first meeting we had, I thought I had it closed. And I walk in and he says, sorry, we want to do it, but the timing's just not right. Let's wait till October. <laughs> I got bills to pay now, man. <laughs> you know, Matt, you understand in sales. Hey, I, I, I want to wait till October. Well, dude, it's March. <laughs> That's the way we're talking next year. Sorry. All right. We're hitting our busy season. We're roofers. Dude, it's going to snow in a week. <laughs> You're not going to be on the roof. Anyway, completely deflated. Completely. I lost all confidence in myself. I was angry. I was discouraged. Got back to the office. We're, we're driving back. My boss is like, how do you feel? I'm not going to tell you the words that I said, but I was like, I'm very angry. <laughs> and he's like, good, you should be. I'm like, yeah, that's good for you to say, but I've got to go home and tell my wife this. Because my financial status relied on this deal. Drove home that day. I said, okay, Jesus, you believe in me more than I believe in myself. Take in your word for it that I can do this through this month that you're going to make it happen. That you're going to give me the ability to make this happen. I'm going to believe in myself as much as you believe in me. I'm going to take this on and we're going to do this. Reverse back a little bit. Morning, I'm going to drive to work. I hear Jesus say, we're beginning the dissension. <laughs> if you guys have been under the teaching of Lonnie talking about the spiral fractal going down, you know what that means, that that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. So Wednesday comes. Same thing. I get up. I go to work. I'm like, okay, Lord, you believe in me. I'm going to believe in myself. We're going to get this done. I'm going to do whatever it takes. You believe in me. I'm going to work my tail off. and I'm going to get this month completed. I'm going to move on to the next step. I'm going to hit my bonus. I'm going to hit my goal. I get to work. My boss goes on a tirade for about the first three hours of our day. We have all of our sales opportunities on a board on post-it notes, and he just starts ripping them all down. And, you know, again, just deflated right there. I'm like, all right, now I've thought I had ready. I've got nothing now, starting from scratch. I send the guy an email. I say, hey, thanks for the meeting. would love to follow up with you. If you don't mind, I'd like to call your boss, the one that is saying, let's not do it, and just see if I can convince him otherwise because we can make it very easy on you. He emails me back on my drive home at 4.15. He says, I convinced him otherwise. Let's meet tomorrow. Absolutely turned the week around, turned the entire month around, actually turned the month around for the entire office. The atmosphere in the entire office on Thursday on a 180 because we were all completely deflated wondering we're not hitting our goals we're not hitting bonuses we are way off you know the financial implications were pretty serious and then we hit this deal and the entire atmosphere changed because I took Jesus's word for it and I said you believe in me I'm gonna believe in myself I'm gonna keep I'm not gonna quit it will change your life to believe that, that Jesus believes in you more than you believe in yourself to get anything done. 
So the next way that Jesus flips all of this, this Roman way, this, this Hebrew, Hebraic way of, of calling disciples, He flips it on His head, is He tells people about His yoke. Now when Jesus talks about His yoke, what are some things that came to mind that you guys would think it was? Michael, don't answer. What are, what are some things that you would think? Egg yolk. Yeah, that's one thing. What's that? Oh, same thing. Ox, an ox yoke? Yeah, that was what I thought for a long time, an ox yoke. A rabbi's yoke would have been their way of teaching. It would have been their interpretation of, or, uh, of the Tanakh. So, for example, my wife's yoke. My wife is a very clean person. I love it and I hate it all at the same time. So my wife's yoke is cleanliness. My wife's yoke is organization. My wife's yoke is anti-clutter. This stage, if she was on it, it would dry, she would probably have a panic attack because there is so much clutter up and down here that she, it probably drives her nuts. There, there's times she goes on her tirade and she calls it purging. And it's very scary when Steph says, I'm purging. Because that means everything's being laid out and it's not put away nice and neat. She's selling it. The computer is on the desk. I'm selling it. I need that computer. I don't care. It's on the desk. It's clutter. I'm selling it. Car, it's taking the garage. I'm selling it. You've been walking on You're fine. This computer, I'm, what is it on the ground? What's this bag? I'm selling it. That's my work computer. We don't even own it. Good, it's straight profit. That, <laughs> this is the yoke of my wife. <laughs> Did someone just say it's true? <laughs> so if you have an issue with cleanliness and clutter, come under the yoke of my wife. <laughs> it's a heavy yoke, but she will teach you all. So that would have been somebody's yoke. Pastor Lonnie's yoke. He, he says, you know, Jesus is teaching it's the best life. His yoke is let me teach you how to live the best life. That's his yoke. So that would have been how the rabbis, you know, would teach. You know, turn the other cheek. How to give tithes and first fruits. There were some uh, rabbis that taught 140th was a first fruit. There was another rabbi that taught 160th was the first fruit. And that became that rabbi's yoke, whether he taught 140th or the other one interpreted as 160th. That was, that was their yoke. That was the way that they would teach. So in Matthew 11:28 through 30, John the Baptist's disciples come up to Jesus and they say, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? John the Baptist is asking, is this worth it? He's about to be beheaded. Is this worth it? Please tell us. And he begins to, he says, yes, they go on. And then right before this, he had just sent his disciples out. And Jesus goes to the synagogue in another city and he begins teaching people at the synagogue. At the synagogue, there would have been other rabbis there teaching people their yoke. So in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. He would have been speaking to all of the people who were under rabbis putting heavy burdens of the law. They would have been weary from trying to carry out the law so strictly that they would have been burdened, that they would have been weary. He's talking to all these people saying, all of you that are under that yoke of burden, under that teaching, come to me. I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Take my teaching. Take my way of life upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. Completely anti-rabbi of the times. We see this with the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. They put heavy burdens on people to follow the law, to give to them, saying, you know, keep giving to me. People were, were poor. People were dirt poor. They were in poverty because their rabbis were financially raping them so that they could live better lives and guilting them into doing it. This would have been so... Just a huge burden lifted off their shoulders for Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, to say, my yoke, light, and it's easy. Some of you here may have even experienced this where you've been in a church where it was a lot of rules, a lot of regulations, a lot of do this. You know, maybe the, the low invitation and the high challenge. Do, 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 but we're not going to invite you to anything. We're not going to bring you into the inner circle. Jesus says, that's not my yoke. My yoke is light. It's easy. It's love each other. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's just love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul. It's come. Follow Me. I don't care if you don't have it all together. The disciples, you, you see some of the things that they said. They were idiots. I mean, I think back to some of the things I said. I'm still an idiot. <laughs> you know, the times were like, what are you? thinking, Colin, what are you saying? But Jesus says, come follow me first. Just follow me. That's all I want. And love me. And I'm going to take care of the rest as we take this journey. But start the journey. What an incredible yoke. What an incredible thing to tell people. What an incredible way to disciple people. Not to keep laws and rules and regulations on them. But to just tell them, hang out with me. And let's follow Jesus together. Let's get covered in the dust of our Rabbi Jesus and let's just figure this thing out as we go. And as we love Jesus, He's going to change us. Pastor Lonnie told me something that absolutely changed my life. He said, don't try and manage your sin. I uh, was addicted to cigarettes for a long time. Basically from the time I was 12 till I was about... 24, 23, 24, somewhere around there. And I kept trying to quit. I was trying to do it with my own power. I kept trying to quit and trying to quit and trying to quit, and I just couldn't do it. And, you know, I, I heard Lonnie say that. Don't try and manage your thing. Just love Jesus and just go after Him with everything that you got. And then He'll take care of all of it. That's a heart. I just started pursuing God. I was like, okay, God, I'm not going to try and do it. I'm not going to try and quit. I'm just going to keep smoking, but I'm going to seek you. I'm going to keep going after you. And suddenly, out of nowhere, one day I just looked at him, tossed him in the garbage. I don't want it anymore. He didn't have a taste for it anymore. It was absolutely incredible. The same thing happened with my marijuana addiction. It was okay, God. I got nothing anymore. I can't do it. So I'm going to start going after you. And if your word is true, then it'll change. Literally, in a night, two people prayed over me. Gone. 
gone. The desire, everything gone in an instant. Absolutely incredible. I never experienced anything like it. See, sometimes when we're putting all of, and we don't even do it knowingly. I know I've done it before. You know, I'm guilty. You know, me and Davion had a great conversation a couple weeks ago. I'm guilty of doing it to Davion. You know, when he lived with us, where I just put on all these rules of the house on him. Instead of just saying, live with us and let me teach you the best life. And just love Jesus. Let's love each other and let's move on. But sometimes we begin to fall in love with the principles of Jesus and the kingdom more than Jesus himself. And we start putting these principles and these rules on people instead of just telling them, love Jesus, everything you've got. My greatest experience with this was before I met Stephanie, I was dating this girl. And as some of you know, there's kind of this unspoken thing in some churches that if you're not married by the time you're 21, you're weird, you're odd, and you're kind of excluded from certain things. You know, I was... 24, I think, when we were date this, I was dating this girl. And things started to move very fast. And we both were kind of seeking this marriage thing very fast. We were both very in love with the idea and the principle of marriage and the things that come along with marriage. And we started to convince each other that we were in love with each other as well because we were so in love with marriage, we wanted it so bad that we convinced ourselves we were in love too. We kept pushing this thing. We kept going after this thing. And then suddenly I realized... (laughs) But seriously, I realized that I had fallen in love with marriage more than I had fallen in love with her. And that would have ruined my life because of the scene you just saw. No, I'm kidding. Kind of. Um, so you know, it was about a year, year or two later that I met Stephanie. And it was all of these things just started to happen where I fell in love with her. I wasn't so concerned and so wrapped up with the, the idea and the principle of marriage that I began to fall in love with her before marriage was even a thought. Let's make sure that we do the same thing, that that we don't fall in love with the principles of the kingdom and the things that Jesus says more than we fall in love with Jesus himself. Because if we fall in love with him first and we begin to seek him, we begin to follow him, we begin begin to be covered in the dust of our rabbi, the other things just start to fall into place. The principles of the kingdom begin to just become a part of your life because you're following your rabbi so close that you just start to do the things that he does. You start to say the things that he says. And you begin to become like your rabbi. So, we see in Acts 15 now, we come to um, basically a meeting of the masterminds, the apostles, of after Jesus has ascended. And they're talking, they're discussing different things. They're discussing, you know, should tiles be circumcised? You know, should they be able to eat pork? You know, things like this. And at this point, they're talking about should Gentiles be circumcised? And all of a sudden, Peter has this amazing revelation in Acts 15, verse 6. And he says, brothers, 
You all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts and He confirms that He accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for He cleansed their hearts through faith. So, that should be why. So why are you challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke, with a teaching, with a way of life that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So at some point during all of this arguing, during all of these these talks that they're having, all the discussion, at some point Peter probably remembered Jesus saying, my yoke is light and easy. All of you who are heavy burdened, come follow me. And he says, why are we putting a yoke on people that Jesus never even put on us? We failed at it. Our ancestors failed on it. Why would we do it to the Gentiles? Just because they're not Jewish? Let's make our yoke light and easy. Let's have that said of, of Keystone. Let's have that said of individual here as you're discipling people, as you're mentoring people, that our yoke is light and easy, that our focus is follow Jesus first. All the rest will follow. All the other stuff, it'll happen. So what are the takeaways from today? One, the yoke of Jesus is light and easy. So should ours. It's not heap rules and laws and, and things that people have to do, hoops to jump through to be a part, to belong, to be a part of our group or to be a believer of Jesus. Let's just make him fall in love with Jesus. You know, the goodness of God is what brings men to repentance. Not the laws and all the rules and the regulations of God, but the goodness. Second, Jesus qualifies the called. He doesn't call the qualified. He believes in every single person that He calls more than we believe in ourselves. So today, if, if you're struggling, maybe at work or maybe with school or you know, maybe in your marriage. You're struggling and you're not starting to believe in yourself. You're beginning to doubt. Take heart because Jesus has more faith in you than you have in Him. If you're moving into a new career maybe and you're getting discouraged and not sure if you can do it, you can because Jesus believes in you more than you believe in yourself. If you're having financial issues and you're not sure what direction to go and how to provide, how to, how to fulfill these financial commitments that you have, keep going after it because Jesus believes in you more than you believe in yourself. And I'll repeat myself. Jesus has more faith in you than you do in Him. Stand with me. <clears throat> Father, we, we bless You as just an incredible Father. Jesus is an incredible, incredible Rabbi that believes in us more than we believe in You. Father, I pray that each person here would get that revelation in their heart and that it would change their lives. That You believe in them 
You believe in them more than they believe in themselves and more than they believe in you. And that's why you called them. That's why you said, come follow me. And Lord, I pray that you find that your is light and easy. That when we're heavy burdened, when we're weighed down, that we can come to you and we can be free. We can be exactly who we are, but just come to you as we are. And you will be the one that changes us. We won't have to change you. Or we won't have to change for you. So Father, thank you for this day. Lord, I pray you'd bless all of these people as they go out. Father, I pray that you would bless Pastor Lonnie and Pastor Teresa, Lord, as they're out at a wedding. Lord, I just speak a blessing over their entire family, Father God. Fulfill all of their desires in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray that as we go out through the week, as we see our people of peace, come across our people of peace, and they begin to follow us, that we would just point them in your direction, and that we'd all be covered in your dust. In Jesus' name, amen.